Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch, where we take the time to evaluate every square inch of God's world through the lens of God's worldview. My name is Robert Cunningham. This is uh, part two of a discussion on America as a Christian nation. In part one, I argued that no, America, nor any nation for that matter, is a Christian nation in the literal sense of the term. Um, Here in part two, I'm going to argue that America absolutely is a Christian nation if we redefine and reimagine what we mean by Christian nation. What I critiqued in episode one was the idea of a Christian theocracy, a Christian state church, or more common, I suppose, um, the idea of Christian nationalism uniting our faith to a nation. And hopefully I was persuasive in demonstrating that these are not uh, biblical concepts and they should not be the Christian ambition. But if you remember, I did argue that this doesn't mean that Jesus and his movement are therefore not political. Jesus was, rightly understood, was a political revolutionary, and we, his followers, are now the activists of his revolution. But the kingdom of God revolution that Jesus inaugurated is an unconventional revolution that does not follow the normal patterns of worldly politics and power. It's a revolution of redemption, not an authoritative campaign, but a transformative campaign. And so what this means is that uh, Christian culture is not one where Christianity is forced upon the culture, but rather it is one where Christian convictions, Christian philosophies, Christian virtues are the assumed plausibility structure of a culture. What does that mean? Plausibility structure is a term that was coined by sociologist Peter Berger, but the, the idea was really more popularly applied in Christian circles by Leslie Newbigin. Here is how Newbigin speaks of plausibility structures. They are, quote, patterns of belief and practice accepted within a given society, which determine which beliefs are plausible to its members and which beliefs are not. A belief is held to be reasonable on the basis of the reigning plausibility structure. Let me translate that for you. Cultural plausibility structures are the taken-for-granted ideas, practices, morals, and so forth of a culture. Those deeply embedded assumptions that a culture takes for granted as simply true. Maybe an illustration here to help us out. Uh, College football has officially returned. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And within my family, uh, that means that passionate support of University of Kentucky football has returned. Um, That's not this season been the most blessed thought. It's a curse, as demonstrated by last week. I mean, was that not the most Kentucky football thing to lose? Well, first of all, you know, anyway, the the run, you know, celebrating, getting tackled, then fumbling, but but losing on an extra point in overtime, just so Kentucky football. But it is what it is. Uh, I can't help but love my Kentucky Wildcats. Now, I have four sons. At no point have I sat them down and told them they have to be a fan of UK athletics. It's not forced upon them. It's not institutionalized in our home, anything like that. And yet, there they are on the couch next to me passionately cheering for Kentucky this year, crying over Kentucky. Now, why is that? 
Because within the culture of the Cunningham household, love of Kentucky athletics is simply assumed. The idea of indifference to UK and certainly the idea of supporting another team is not a plausible option. It's not that it's forbidden. It's just that it's not plausible. They can't imagine a reality without love for the cats, meaning I have created a plausibility structure within my home where love for Kentucky is simply assumed. Now, expand that out to nations and cultures. Every culture orders itself around plausibility structures. That disorienting feeling that you have when you travel internationally, for example, that is you encountering different plausibility structures. They are very noticeable to an outsider, but as a cultural insider, they go unnoticed as assumed or plausible beliefs. Simply put, plausibility structures are the ideas and practices that are self-evident within a culture. Self-evident. Does that term sound familiar? It should to Americans. Our Declaration of Independence, from which the United States of America was born. We hold these truths to be self-evident. These are our obvious, self-evident, taken-for-granted truths. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When our declaration said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, our founders were declaring their reigning plausibility structure. And at the core of the plausibility structure was that all are equal and endowed by a creator with unalienable rights. Now, here's what you need to understand. Those truths are not self-evident truths, historically speaking. In fact, the Declaration of Independence, along with the Constitution that you know, codified these self-evident truths, these are in many ways remain unprecedented as plausibility structures. The idea of a society where every citizen is equal and endowed with God-given rights that pre-exist the government, meaning the government does not grant the rights of the people. God has granted people with transcendent rights that precede any and all governments, And the government's role is to protect the rights that have already been granted by the Creator. That concept is an anomaly, historically speaking. So where'd it come from? Now we come to America as a Christian nation. The American project was born out of Christian assumptions. The self-evident truths of our plausibility structure are unique self-evident truths of the Christian worldview. There's a popular belief that America was founded as a secular nation um, exclusively upon the ideals of the Enlightenment, classical liberalism, and so forth. Um, And this is because there is a disproportionate historical attention given to founders with supposed, and I emphasize supposed, deistic worldview. You know, Franklin, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, and so forth. These founders, it is argued, were followers of John Locke's classic liberalism, not Jesus and his worldview. Now, this argument is problematic in many ways, and I I do want to take the time to critique it. First, if we go by the true definition of deism, that God set the world in motion and then he removes himself from human affairs, 
if that's the definition of deism, and it is the definition of deism, then none of these men were deists. The only founder who fits that definition would be Ethan Allen. Now, in addition, we fail to appreciate how much influence Christianity had on the formation of classic liberalism itself. So even if our more well-known founders were Lockeans more than they were Christians, well, Locke's views were profoundly influenced by Scripture and the Christian worldview. But the bigger problem with viewing our founding exclusively through the lens of these famous founders is that it's just not true. It's not a true historical picture of America's foundation as scholars um, like Mark David Hall are definitively proving, in my, in my opinion. If you want more of this, the true picture, you know, Mark Hall's work, um, he, you know, there's a ton of um, academic and scholarly stuff that he's written, but he did the world a favor by um, taking his research and putting it into popular form with a very accessible book entitled, Did America Have a Christian Founding? And I commend it to you. The true picture that comes out of his work and others is that the overwhelming majority of American founders were not just Christians. They were devout, reformed Protestants. Cindy Alstrom estimates that three-fourths of America's population in 1776 was devout, reformed Christians. And this is reflected not just in the population, but in the leadership. The one I'm studying is Elias Boudinot, a mentor to Hamilton, trusted companion to Washington, president of the Continental Congress, early U.S. representative. His influence is all over America's founding. And when you read his writings, and trust me, I have, they sound a lot more like John Calvin than John Locke. So, truth be told, if you want to attribute our founding to a particular tradition, then (laughs) I am happy to say it's my tradition. Reformed Presbyterianism more than any other. That's not to say that Locke's liberalism, the Scottish Enlightenment, and, you know, so forth, these were not influential. They most certainly were. I'm not denying that. History doesn't deny that. But historically speaking, it can be demonstrated that the Christian worldview, more than any other worldview, influenced the original plausibility structure of our nation. Therefore, the historical uniqueness of the American project is owing to the historical uniqueness of Christianity. Several times on this podcast, I have recommended Tom Holland's work to you. But once again, I want to point you to his book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. It's a groundbreaking study, especially considering its source, because Holland is, he's an eminent historian, but he is far from a Christian apologist, quite the opposite. He's a skeptic, and he is also very honest with the failures of Christianity throughout history. And yet, as a historian, he cannot deny his conclusion that the Christian revolution is what led to the self-evident truths we now take for granted. Equality, dignity of every individual, the subsequent human rights of every individual, the ideas of liberty and freedom, dignity and care for the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the redefinition of sexuality as a consensual act, love, not power, as the highest cultural ambition, We hold these truths as self-evident, but you must understand that these truths were strange at best and scorned at worst until the Christian worldview revolutionized the world as we know it. And so from a historical perspective, it's not hard to make the case that the Declaration and Constitution were the advancement of uniquely Christian ideals. 
even the brilliance of a republic ordered around the separation, not consolidation of power, was born out of the Christian doctrine of depravity of man. As James Madison famously said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern, no control would be necessary. But in framing a government administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed and oblige it to control itself. Meaning this, if we were angels, none of this would be necessary, but we're not. We are sinners. And because we are all sinners, including those in power, then not only must the government control the sins of the governed, but the sins of those governing must likewise be controlled by those being governed. Thus, a system of representation along with checks and balances. So back to the original question. Is America a Christian nation? In a literal sense, no, as I argued in my previous podcast. But is the foundation of America a Christian foundation? Does America have a distinctly Christian plausibility structure? Absolutely. With all due respect to the New York Times and their 1619 project, it's just not accurate history, which is why it's receiving uh, such high critique by historians. America was not built on slavery. America was built on Christianity. Okay, well then what do we do with America's slavery? What do we do with America's segregation and racism and, and so forth? Remember, this podcast series is in response to my series on race in America. What happened is that many experienced my analysis of America's sin as disruptive to their American patriotism. And I don't think it's a bad thing, as I detailed in my last episode. I think our patriotism does need to be disrupted and critiqued. But how do we reconcile America's Christian foundation with America's evil? Well, first and foremost, it must be said that even that question itself is proof that America, even to this very day, exists within a Christian plausibility structure. How so? Well, where does this deeply ingrained standard of equality, freedom, and human dignity by which we hold our country accountable to, where does that come from? Again, this moral outrage over trafficking and enslaving human beings is a relatively new development for humanity. It wasn't until the Christian worldview changed the world that it became self-evident that all are equal and should be treated that way. So ironically, when people point to America's wicked history of slavery as proof that America cannot be a Christianized culture, they are in fact proving that America is a Christianized culture. The entire 1619 Project is invoking the Christian worldview to prove its case, <laughs> meaning in declaring America evil, they are borrowing from America's nobility that was inherited from America's Christianity. But the greater point, the greater answer to the question of how we reconcile America's Christian foundation with America's historic sins is that we don't have to. If America is a Christian nation like I talked about in my last podcast— if we subscribe to an idolatry of Christian nationalism, if we assume that America is God's uniquely chosen nation or something like that, then yes, we do have a problem on our hands, a problem that I outlined in my last episode. But that's not what we believe. We believe America was founded upon and influenced by the Christian worldview, 
And so now the issue is whether or not we live up to our founding ideals. And there are, of course, many ways that we have egregiously failed to do so, most notably the way we have treated the black population in our nation. And so the way forward is not to condemn and deconstruct American ideals. The way forward is to demand that America live up to its ideals. This is the brilliance of Frederick Douglass and his public work. Go read his speech, What, is, what to the Slave is the Fourth of July? And what you will find is not the 1619 Project route, which seeks to condemn the 4th of July as fundamentally flawed, but rather a prophetic rebuke to a nation to live up to the 4th of July standard. Douglas prophetically, scathingly pointed out the hypocrisy of a nation that values Christian ideals but does not consistently apply those ideals. And in particular, he rebuked the American church, American Christianity, for its obvious neglect of the Christian ethic. So essentially, he used Christianity against Christianity. And this is what we do with injustices in our nation. Rather than condemn the nation, we relentlessly lift high the ways our nation has failed to be what we claim to be. The Third Reich, that needed to be dismantled and completely reconstructed. North Korea, North Korea needs to be dismantled and completely reconstructed. Because these are fundamentally flawed nations and cultures built on fundamentally flawed ideals and plausibility structures. And the 1619 Project seeks to do the same with America. But the key difference is that America's problem is not its foundational ideals, but our failure to enact those ideals. America does not need to be dismantled. America needs to be America. That original, beautiful, glorious vision born out of the utterly unique Christian ideal and ethic. And my challenge to American Christians is to be that change. At the end of the day, we are the ones entrusted with the Christian ethic that led to our nation's formation. We now bear that ethic. And now the duty belongs to us to lead in our nation's reformation. Reformation starts with us. And here's why I say that. My concern is that the politicization of America has consumed American Christianity. We have bought into the fallacy that the agent of cultural change is the coercive power of the state. Meaning, the just culture we long to see is on the other side of an election, a Supreme Court decision, and so forth. That's the lie a lie that the founders rejected. The original vision, again, born out of uh, Christian conviction, is that the state's role was to protect the rights of its citizens to themselves be the change. They viewed the state and the church as balanced partners in the pursuit of a public righteousness. The state's role was to protect the freedom of the church to fulfill its role in cultivating this public righteousness. That is the true meaning behind the separation of church and state that was canonized in the First Amendment with these words, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Those words have been reinterpreted as a secular ambition to keep Christianity out of politics, out of everything, truth be told. But in reality, the opposite is true. 
The First Amendment was to keep politics out of Christianity, such that Christianity could flourish and do what Jesus called us to do, which was to devote ourselves to the common good of public righteousness. The day after the wording of the First Amendment was approved by Congress, Representative Elias Boudinot, the man I'm studying, Boudinot proposed that President Washington declare a day of public thanksgiving and prayer for the entire nation. So think, think about that. One day they passed the First Amendment, which separates church and state. The next day they call for a resolution from the president to declare a public day of thanksgiving and prayer. <laughs> the resolution passed the House and Senate on October 3rd, 1789. Washington delivered an incredibly powerful declaration calling upon all citizens of the United States to offer praise and prayer to God for the nation. You can read his proclamation for yourself, but essentially he challenged the citizens to take seriously their devotion to the common good of the United States of America. So this is the truer picture, okay? The Bill of Rights was passed ensuring that citizens would be free to practice their religion. And then the president turned around to those same citizens and essentially said, we've protected your religious liberty. Now the responsibility is on you to be good stewards of that liberty by cultivating a righteous republic that honors God and blesses the common good. But what are Christians doing in our day? Instead of making use of our protected liberty to create a righteous culture, we have bought into the politicization of our day and are trusting the government to legislate a righteous culture. That's not the role of the state under the American Constitution. The state protects so that we can act. So we celebrate and enjoy the protection of the First Amendment, and rightfully so. May it forever be law. But are we willing to take up the demands of the First Amendment? And the demand is that culture belongs to us, not the state. We, not the legislators we elect, we bear the demands of justice. Now, it's not to say that legislation has no role to play here. Of course it does. But the American ideal is that just legislation is born out of a just culture that we have created. So, what are we to do with the discrepancy between America's Christian foundation and America's historic sins? We get to work. We do our small part in correcting that discrepancy. We strive to become what the Declaration declares us to be. I'll conclude this series by making my point, um, by uh, pointing us to a brilliant and beautiful piece of American art that makes my case better than a podcast can. You know, sometimes we need art to show us what analysis cannot. And that's what the Broadway musical Hamilton is doing in our culture right now. If you're unfamiliar with Hamilton, uh, you need to get familiar. Uh, the soundtrack has been on repeat in our home since Abby and I had the chance to see Hamilton in New York. Which, by the way, I'm, I'm rethinking that decision. That <laughs> The soundtrack has been on repeat in our home. It's an amazing soundtrack, but parents, um, not sure if that was the best choice, especially when I heard my uh, four-year-old singing the first lines of the play the other day. Um, if you know the song, you know that's a huge parent fail. If you don't know, you can Google and see for yourself why that's a huge parent fail. 
so let's just let's just say it's pretty shocking to hear it come from the mouth of a four-year-old. And I was just like, please don't sing that at church. Please don't sing that at church. Please don't sing that at church. We've actually corrected that. We, we've we've chosen um, we've chosen to replace one parent fail with another parent fail and essentially lie to him and tell him what the words are. Um, how does a pastor, P-A-S-T-O-R, how does a pastor orphan son of a war, W-A-R, um, so we just lied to him to fix it. Anyway, this is not about my bad parenting. Maybe a podcast for another day. Hamilton. Uh, it tells the story of America's founding through the lens of Alexander Hamilton, obviously. But here's its brilliance. It casted black and brown characters, and the soundtrack is a hip-hop soundtrack. Now, the musical itself is not a critique of the American project along the lines of the 1619 project. Quite the opposite. It celebrates the greatness of America in powerful ways. But by casting black characters instead of white characters, with a musical score from black culture instead of white culture, we are forced into a disorienting reckoning that America's greatness was not available to all, that America's ideals remain unfinished. In short, it evokes the most appropriate form of patriotism, a humble patriotism that views America as neither perfect nor evil. And at the end of the play, we watch Hamilton die from his infamous battle with um, Aaron Burr, a dual gun battle with Aaron Burr. And after being shot, you kind of get this beautiful moment where Hamilton recounts a lot of his life and he sings these words. Legacy. What is legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. I wrote some notes at the beginning of a song someone will sing for me. America, you great unfinished symphony. That's it. There it is. That's American patriotism. The founders planted seeds of Christian convictions in a garden they did not get to see flourish. They wrote notes at the beginning of a song that others would sing, America, you great unfinished symphony. Christian, let's finish it. Let's tend to the garden. Let's sing the song. Let's not make America great again. Let's make America the greatness she was meant to be. Thanks for listening. Uh, Please subscribe, uh, rate, review, share with others, all that good stuff. It really does um, help support us and and what we're trying to do here. Um, if, If there are those you think might benefit from the content, please share with them. And we will be back soon for another episode of Every Square Inch.